Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Come Follow Me podcast for teens. I'm Josh Downs and excited to be with you for another week. This week is going to be episode 12, and we're going to be looking at Matthew chapters 11 through 12 and Luke chapter 11 under the the premise of I will give you rest. Now we have another great week of content, and I'm super excited to jump in and look at some things that can really help all of us, but especially teenagers in navigating some of the the challenges that are so unique to them at this point in time in, in their life and really in the world's history as well. And as always, as you go through your study this week, remember to look for the three main things that I have mentioned all along. And that is one, how does this particular lesson, these chapters, uh, whatever story that we may be studying, how does it bear testimony of Christ? And second, what principles can I pull out of these stories that I can use to help me better navigate things that are going on in my life? And then finally, as I've mentioned many times, what character traits can I see in Christ and those that choose to follow him that can help me know how to better be like him and follow him as well? And I wanted to start off this week's content uh, with a personal story that I experienced back when I was teaching seminary many years ago. I was a relatively new teacher at the time, and I remember there was one student in particular in one of my classes that was a little more rough kind of around the edges, a little bit of, uh, had a little bit of a rebellious spirit about her. I, I recognized it right away. I could see it in the way that she conducted herself in class, uh, even the way that she dressed, kind of just put out that vibe a little bit. And sure enough, as we would get into lessons, some of that would come out in the discussion. And she was always so quick to take the position that the things that we were studying, the commandments that we were learning, um, the doctrines of the church, the, the practices, the principles, all those things were so restrictive. That was always her argument that, Brother Downs, why are these things so restrictive? Why are there so many things in the church that we have to do? That's not real freedom. She wouldn't come to class very often, but when she did, those were always the things that she would contribute to the class discussion. And bless her heart, I just, I loved her. She was a wonderful student of mine, a wonderful person. And we had a lot of fun kind of going back and forth. I was able to take exactly what she said and and validate it, you know, let her know that, yeah, I I can see how you could see that. Some of these things do seem like they would be hard to do and and to follow. And I would always then try to explain why. And we just have some fun kind of teasing each other and going back and forth. And honestly, kind of reminded myself back when I was young. In fact, I think all of us go through a phase like that in, in our life. And especially as members of the church, there are a lot of things that we are instructed that we need to do or that we can choose to do or that we and sometimes, unfortunately, are expected to do, right? Things like always saying our prayers and reading the scriptures and going to church and going to seminary and preparing for a mission, getting married in the temple, right? The word of wisdom, the law of chastity, just there are lots uh, of different things, commandments and doctrines that we are expected to follow. And so it can at times feel a little overwhelming, even burdensome. Restrictive, I think, was the word that she chose to use. And I actually had an experience later on with this student that I'll reference kind of towards the end to tie all this in together that was a little heartbreaking, but also helped me to see just how important these things we'll be talking about today really are. Let me begin by first setting the context a little bit for these chapters that we'll be studying. And I took this just right out of the Come Follow Me curriculum which says, in many ways, the Pharisees and scribes had made worshiping Jehovah burdensome. 
They often emphasize strict rules over eternal truths. Rules about the Sabbath day as an example, which was meant to be a day of rest, were themselves a heavy burden. And then Jehovah himself came among his people, and he taught them that the true purpose of religion is not to create burdens, but to relieve them. Yes, the way to God is straight and narrow, but the Lord came to announce that we need not walk it alone. Come unto me, he pleaded. His invitation to all who feel heavy laden for any reason is to stand beside him, to bind ourselves to him, and let him share our burdens. His promise is that ye shall find rest unto your souls. Compared to the alternatives, trying to carry on alone or relying on our mortal solutions, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now, as always, what I'm going to do is just kind of go through chapter by chapter and give you some of the key points and key things to look for. And there are verses that I want to read together, and there's some that I may just give you some things to, to look at on your own as you go through and study. And I would invite you as we go through this to make sure to pause whenever needed, to read a little bit and study on your own, to answer questions, to journal some things down, to maybe have a discussion with those that you're studying this with. Because really the hope is that I can guide you through this in such a way that you are studying and that you are learning for yourself. And so with that, make sure that you grab your scriptures, make sure that you grab a marking pencil or something to mark with, a journal or notebook to write some thoughts on, answer some questions on, and then let's get started and jump right in. And we're going to begin by looking at Matthew chapter 11. Now last week we looked a lot at the calling of the 12 and their commission to go forth and to begin teaching and preaching Christ's gospel to all the cities that were around about the area. After giving that commandment, verse 1 of chapter 11 reads, And it came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and preach in their cities. So he continues to go about his own work. And one of the first things that happens is one of the key points that I want to focus on in this particular chapter, and that's found in verses 2 through 6. And as you go through and study these verses, I want you to look for what it is that these verses might teach about how to help others better find Christ, to better recognize that he is the one that they need, the one that they've been looking for, the one that can help them with their problems and basically just help them with their life. And let's begin by looking at verse 2, which reads, Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come? Or do we look for another? Now, at first reading, it seems like John is trying to find out a little bit more if Christ is actually Christ, which we know isn't the case. John knows who the Savior is. He baptized him. He received that witness. He knows who the Savior is. I believe that what he's doing here is giving a couple of his disciples the opportunity to come to know and to find Christ for themselves. And so he sends them to him to ask him that question, which I would encourage you to mark in verse 3 because it is a very powerful question. Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? In many ways, all of us will be asking that question, or we will have others ask that question of us. First of all, we need to be able to answer it, kind of a what think ye of Christ type of a question. Do we really believe that he is the one that has been foretold that should come? Do we believe in those things we've been taught about him, that he has all power, that he has all knowledge, and that he has the ability to forgive sins and to heal and to help us navigate the challenges in life. If we can answer yes to that, then we are in a position to help others to find him as well. Now, look how the Savior answers that particular question in verse, verses 4 through 5. Verse 4 records, Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. 
the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And then verse 6, And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. In other words, he gives them evidence that yes, he is the one that they have been looking for, that they don't need to go look for another. And I think that one of the first things and maybe questions I'd posed is, There will be people that will ask each and every one of you, young people, that same question in navigating through their own challenges and trials. They'll want to know, can Christ really help me? Is he the one that I need to turn to? Is is he the one that I need to open my heart to? Is he the one that is meant to come and, and help me or do I need to look for something else? And they'll want to know, where is the evidence, right? Give me the evidence. And so that's one of the first thoughts I would invite you to consider and think and maybe even journal a little bit on. What evidence do you have that you can give to confirm to others that he is the one? How have you experienced him in your life? Bring healing, bring help, bring support, bring comfort, bring peace, bring direction, bring guidance, bring all the things that have brought about good in your life. If you can give them evidence of that, it's going to help them to know that they've come to the right place and that they've found the right one, the one that can help them in their own life, face their own challenges. And let me give you a great cross-referencing scripture that you could put next to those evidences that are there just to kind of remind you of the opportunity and responsibility we all have to give evidence that Christ is the one. And it's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Peter says, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We need that evidence for ourselves and for others. And that's something that I want you to think about. What would you really say to someone if they came up to you and said, is Christ the one that I need in my life or do I need to look for something else? And why? My hope is is that you'll be able to give some evidence, some of the reason for the hope that is in you. And if not, that's okay as well because you can start today collecting evidence that you can always share later. Another great reference is Ether chapter 12, verse 6, that talks about the way to go about receiving evidence or a witness. It's in here that Moroni teaches, Dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. In other words, in order to obtain a witness of Christ, you have to do those things based on faith that he asks you to do first. I remember one student one day coming into my office after class saying, Brother Downs, None of this stuff works. It just doesn't work for me. And I remember saying, what do you mean it doesn't work? What doesn't work? He said, well, reading the scriptures and saying prayers. I just, I have tried it and I have just gotten no testimony from it. I've received no answer, no witness that any of it's true. And I just, I don't want to do it anymore. Boy, as a teacher, what do you say to that kind of a concern? Then I had a thought and the thought was to just simply ask him, okay, well, how long have you been doing those things? And he said, well, for one week, Brother Downs, I've been reading my my scriptures for a week and saying my prayers for a week and nothing's happened. Oh, bless his heart, right, is what my grandma would say. His intent was great, but I had to try to teach him a principle that we receive no witness until after the trial of our faith. That sometimes it takes a little bit of, of effort and it takes a little bit of time. And sometimes it takes pushing through some very hard things before that witness is received. And once he came to understand that principle, he was more willing to go back and continue to give it a try. So keep that in mind as you go about exercising your faith, 
so that you too can begin to collect evidence of who Christ is and what he can do. Now, in verses 7 through 12, we won't take the time to read through those, but Christ basically testifies of the greatness of John. He loves John, his cousin. And then in verses 13 through 19, he makes a very interesting point. He says to the scribes and Pharisees and and others that are listening, that, as he says in verse 18, because John came neither eating nor drinking, they say that he hath a devil. John was probably a little bit more aloof from the people, a little bit more direct and, and maybe hard to swallow for a lot of people. But for Christ coming in verse 19, he says, but because the Son of Man came eating and drinking, you know, spending time with, with those that he was teaching, they say, behold, a man that is gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners, but wisdom is justified of her children. I put in there as a cross-reference, Doctrine and Covenants section 88, verse 124, which talks about ceasing to find fault with one another. And I think that that is just such an important way to live. Young people, we live in a world where everyone is so quick to point out our flaws and our mistakes and everything that we've done ever that's been wrong. And I really feel like we need to try to get past that and get away from that and try to focus on the good that people do. Because the reality is there is good and there is evil in all of us. And if we look just for that which is bad, we will always find that which is bad which is exactly what the Pharisees did. And because of that, not only did they miss John and in, in his greatness, but they miss Christ, the Son of God, even though he was standing right in front of them. The way in which we choose to perceive the world goes a long ways into what we find in the world. Now, the end of the chapter, we get into some of the key verses that we'll spend the time in a little bit later, verses 28 through 30, where the Savior talks about coming unto him and and finding rest in him. So we're going to skip those for now and instead go to Matthew chapter 12. So if you'll turn there, there's a couple of of other key points that I want to make sure that we cover in these chapters. This particular chapter, chapter 12, begins where the Savior, and I think we referenced this in a past episode, was with his disciples, and they were hungry, and so they were in a cornfield picking corn so they could have something to eat, and it was happened to be on the Sabbath day. And because of that, there were some Pharisees and Sadducees, because of some of the rules and the regulations that really they had set up in terms of their interpretation of the law of Moses, one of those was to not perform any work on the Sabbath day. In fact, I think they even got to a point where they they limited... Things like even how many steps you could take on the Sabbath day. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what it would be like to to leave your house and and have to run somewhere and realize that you ran out of steps to get home? (laughs) And so you realize all you could do at this point was just stand where you were and wait until the next day when your ability to take steps has basically been restored. (laughs) You can see in part why the the religion at the time had become so burdensome to the, the people. But when they saw Christ picking corn, of course, they approached him and asked him, why are you doing this on the Sabbath day? And he did teach him that great principle that we looked at a little bit earlier, where he said, was the Sabbath made for man, or was man made for the Sabbath? But then he teaches them another great principle about really the Sabbath day and all of religion in general. Let's look at those verses, starting in verse 1, which reads, At the time Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungered, and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat, But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungered, and they that were with him? 
how he entered into the house of God and to eat of the shewbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were him, but only for the priests? Or have ye not read in the law now how on the, the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. <laughs> and then he points out, But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. It's okay to eat food on the Sabbath day. It's some of these things, although yes, maybe there are some restrictions. Heavenly Father is a merciful God and he understands the circumstances and sometimes the difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in. In verse 8, the Lord points out, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And then in order to teach them firsthand all about this, there's an incredible experience that they all have together. In verse 10, it records, And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? Here they are trying to trick Christ, right? By by tempting him to perform a miracle to help a person that has a withered hand because in their estimation, it's not good to heal on the Sabbath day. They're not supposed to do anything. Well, in verse 11, the Savior says, And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold of it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, yes, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. And then what does he do? Well, in verse 13, Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, like as the other. What an amazing story and lesson. What he is trying to teach these blind Pharisees and scribes, and really all of us who honestly at times we might get caught up being a little bit blind as to the purpose of religion and even the church as well. But here he's trying to remind us what that purpose is, what the purpose is of the Sabbath, what the purpose is of the church, what the purpose is of religion in general. And that is to simply help us to do good. And I've seen this principle that the Savior is teaching here illustrated in many ways throughout my life. One of my favorites comes from Brigham Young in an address that he gave in the winter of 1856 after having arrived in the Salt Lake Valley. And listen to what he said and what he taught here in this particular general conference in 1856. He said, I will now give this people the subject and the text of the elders of whom may speak today and during the conference. And it is this. On the 5th day of October, 1856, many of our brethren and sisters are on the plains with handcarts, and probably many are now 700 miles from this place, and they must be brought here. We must send assistance to them. The text will be to get them here. I want the brethren who may speak to understand that their text is the people on the plains, and the subject matter for this community is to send for them and bring them in before the winter set in. That is my religion. That is the dictation of the Holy Ghost that I possess. It is to save the people. This is the salvation I am now seeking for, to save our brethren that would be apt to perish or suffer extremely if we do not send them some assistance. I shall call upon the bishops this day, even on Sunday, and I shall not wait until tomorrow, nor the next day, for 60 good mule teams and 112 or 15 wagons. I will tell you all that your faith, religion, and profession of religion 
will never save one soul of you in the celestial kingdom of our God unless you carry out just such principles as I am now teaching you. Go and bring in those people now on the plane. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. <laughs> Imagine being in that conference and hearing that kind of a talk. How do you think you might respond? Wow, yeah, I need to, I need to get out there and do some things. You, you know, but let me first uh, attend my Sunday school class or make sure I go to Ellers Corner Relief Society. You know, I, I don't want to miss those lessons. Um, <laughs> no, we need to go right now, drop everything and go help those that are in need. That's the whole purpose of why I'm even at church to begin with is so that I can become better at doing just that. Another place that I saw that that's a little bit more recent was when there was a mudslide in Logan, Utah that was pretty serious. A couple people lost their lives. A lot of property was damaged. But this was reported in the church news regarding this event. It said, in the hours after a massive mudslide claimed the, the lives of three people and devastated a Logan, Utah neighborhood on July 11th, church members rallied to provide help and support. It is touching to watch how the church works when there is a disaster, said Elder Thomas M. Charrington in Area 70. Wherever there was a need, members went. They followed the flood and tried to help those who would accept help. A canal break triggered a massive mudslide that crushed a home and damaged more than 20 others in an area located just south of Utah State University. When President Brian L. R. Larson, the state president, arrived on the scene hours after the disaster, he knew a serious thing had happened. The streets and yards were filled with mud and water. The American Red Cross set up a shelter at the LDS Meeting House in Logan, and food was prepared by members of the Relief Society, and an estimated 400 church members began cleaning up mud. They worked tirelessly throughout the night to help their neighbors and friends, President Larson said. And then listen to this. The following day, Sunday, church meetings for three wards in the stake were canceled. Oh my goodness. Why? How could they cancel church? And in their place, a joint sacrament meeting was held, followed by members dispersing to clean up areas assigned by city officials. Boy, I loved reading that. It said President Larson mentioned that the impact by members that Sunday was incredible to see. Every hour and a half, there were 100 to 120 people that would just show up with shovels and rakes to help. The Apostle James said that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. The wording is simple and it's unpretentious, yet the meaning is profound and has deep significance. In short, James tells all of us that true religion is a devotion to God, yes, but that is best demonstrated by love and compassion for our fellow men, coupled with unworldliness. Young people, that's exactly why we have church. That's exactly why we have our religion and our faith, is to help us to become more like that. Now, unfortunately, this, the Pharisees and scribes did not quite see it that way. As it mentions in the next verses that it was at this point that they started to plan his death, how they might destroy him. Boy, talk about not being able to see what is right in front of them. And you know what? Because of that, because they were so caught up in the checklist and the to-dos of their faith and religion, they missed an incredible experience in the next verse, in verse 15, where it records, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Imagine all the miracles that they missed seeing because, again, they were so focused on things that really didn't matter in their faith and religion. 
And you guys, I want you to see how I really believe Heavenly Father is helping us to shift away from that kind of thinking as much as we can. And I think if you look close enough, you can see that God has really been helping us get to that point through a lot of the changes that we've experienced as members of the church over the, the past several years with things like Preach My Gospel coming about or the whole Come Follow Me program for that matter or the condensing of church meetings to two hours or here recently, the For Strength of Youth. There were a lot of things in these programs that could have been seen as very structured and very kind of almost uh, checkbox-ish right? Where we have a list of things that we're supposed to do or not do. And God really seems to be wanting to move us to a place where we are doing things in the right way and for the right reasons. Not because we have to or we're told to or because we feel obligated to, but because we genuinely want to. Which also ironically seems to free us up a little bit more to be able to follow the Spirit as to when and how to do them. It really is a beautiful transition that we've been going through and one that is helping to invite more power into our lives, especially as the world gets a little more challenging to live in. Now, if you'll jump to verses 24 through 33, one of the things I'd invite you to look for as you read through these verses on your own is how can these particular verses help those that struggle with maybe understanding church history or hearing some of the bad things supposedly about the church or even Joseph Smith I can't promise that you'll never come across something or hear something that might be a little hard to understand or cause you to question a few things. That's part of the normal process of learning and growing and really developing faith. But in verses 24 through 33, we can learn one principle that can really help us navigate through some of those kind of questionable times or periods in our life that we might go through. Let's go first of all to verse 23 to kind of see this principle. It records, and all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? In verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of all devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Now, that's just a great thought and true principle of itself. Whenever there's division, things will fall apart. But he's also using that principle to point this out, that why would Satan cast out Satan? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Satan would not do that, right? In verse 33, he kind of clarifies the principle that he's teaching where he says, either make the tree good and his fruit good or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. The Lord has taught in multiple times and multiple ways this kind of principle that a good tree cannot bring forth bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bring forth good fruit or a good fountain cannot bring forth bitter waters and bitter waters cannot come from a good fountain that you can always know a tree by its fruit. And young people, you can use that principle to guide you with a lot of things. You can use it to help you really judge people that might come into your life, organizations that you might have the opportunity to be a part of, friends that you might invite into your life, or the, even the church in general. This is one of the principles I always personally fall back on whenever they may, there may be something that I don't quite understand or doesn't really make sense to me. I know that everything that I have experienced in the church and in the gospel of Christ is good. I know as I've read and studied the scriptures that they are good. As I've read and studied the Book of Mormon that it is good. That the things that I have been taught and the way that I feel when I go to church is good. The way that I have been inspired to be better and to help others is good. Does that mean everything is perfect? No. But by and large, the things that I have seen and experienced as a member of this church is good. 
And so you'll never be able to convince me that this church is anything else because the fruit has always been good. Doesn't mean that the people are always good, right? Again, we always, I think like we talked about last week, we got to separate the people from the church. This is also a hospital for sick people. But by and large, what you will find here are people trying to be better and to do good. And that's enough for me. Another great verse you may want to look at in Mark is verse 50, where the Lord points out, For whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother. Again, the idea that it's not just enough to learn these things. We have to do them. It's not just enough to attend church, but the purpose of church is to help us to become better and to love and serve each other better. And that should be the result of it as we do these things. We should see that, right? This, the scribes and Pharisees really struggled with this. In Luke chapter 11 is where we'll go to next. And this is really where the Savior kind of blasts them a little bit for missing the whole point and purpose of religion. They've got so caught up in the, a lot of the to-dos of their faith that they're missing everything that their faith is meant to do. And I think the Lord is continuing to try to point this out to them in this chapter. And we'll just hit a couple verses, take a look at a couple things quick. Verses 34 through 36, he's trying to teach them the importance of protecting the things that we allow into our hearts and minds by the things that we see as he references that the light of the body is the eye. It's verses 37 through 34, however, that I invite you to really stop and pause and read on your own and ask yourself, what do these verses teach about why hypocrisy is so dangerous to our progression? Why is it so important that we don't hide who we are or what we've done, especially from God? And the Savior tries to teach this to one Pharisee in particular when he is invited to sit down and have dinner with him and avoid some of the ceremonious washings that typically take place before dinner. And when the Pharisee asks him why he didn't wash, pay attention to verse 39, where the Lord says to him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. And pay attention to the Joseph Smith translation in that, in verse 41a, there's a great reference where the Lord is trying to teach them about the dangers of hypocrisy, but also how to overcome it. That instead of focusing on the outside, we need to first focus on the inside. Before the outside can be cleansed, we first need to cleanse the inner vessel. And I think this is one of the reasons why he speaks so harshly to this particular group and to all those that act as hypocrites. Because he cannot get access to their hearts to help them and to change them until they first become open and vulnerable with who they are and what they've done. Instead of trying to hide it. And as a great cross-referencing verse, you can write next to these verses, Alma chapter 60, verse 23, where Moroni teaches this principle in the Book of Mormon when he says, Remember that God has said that the inward vessel shall be cleansed first, and then shall the outer vessel be cleansed also. And that covers a lot of the key points that I wanted to go over in these particular chapters. Well, there's certainly so much more to be discovered. Hopefully some of that was able to, to be helpful in guiding you through them. The key principle that I wanted to focus on today and end with is back in Matthew chapter 11. Let's take a, a moment and, and turn there. We're going to end with verses 28 through 30, where the Savior says, and we'll read these together, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest into your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
I think rest and peace is something that we all want, especially amid the challenges and trials of life. And in these verses, the Savior almost gives us a pattern to follow, to be able to obtain that peace. The first step that he points out is to come unto me. And he references all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And sometimes that's what it takes to get us to turn to Christ, is immense pressure and struggle. But even in that, he invites us to come unto him. And it is the part of that process then to take his yoke upon us. Now, for those that are unfamiliar with what a yoke is, a yoke is something that is used to place on the back of an oxen and really to connect two oxen together to pull whatever equipment that they're meant to pull. And the purpose of the yoke is one to help the oxen work together, but also be able to channel their strength and their energy together in being able to do more. And one of the common practices back in in the day when this was commonly used was that a seasoned ox or an older ox and stronger ox was typically paired with one that was younger. So as to help train and, and really to lead the younger ox. And it required the younger ox to submit to the direction and power of the seasoned ox. And the yoke is what would channel their combined strength of the oxen pulling together. And I think one of the key points of the yoke, maybe the key point of the yoke, is submission. And it really is quite a beautiful analogy if you really stop and analyze it a, a little bit. The yoke binds the oxen together so that they move together, they act together, and they support each other in the direction that they're trying to go, with both submitting to the one that is driving them. And we see this beautifully portrayed in the way that Christ was always submissive to his Father, and in the way that he now invites us to be submissive to him and to trust him the way that he trusts his Father. And then as we choose to do that and take his yoke upon us and bind ourselves to him, we have access to a power beyond our own to assist us in whatever it is that we are asked to carry or to pull or to endure as a part of life's experiences. Chad Wilcox, in his talk titled Worthiness is Not Flawlessness, said, His grace is not just a prize for the worthy. It is the divine assistance he gives that helps us become worthy. It is not just a reward for the righteous. It is the endowment of strength that he gives to help us become righteous. We are not just walking toward God in Christ, we are walking with them. And I just love that statement because that is exactly how I picture it when I think about taking upon ourselves the yoke of Christ. And that it isn't something that we're ever asked to do alone. That we are indeed partnering with Christ in the process so that he can help us get us to where he knows that we need to go. Now, one of the questions that is obviously a part of the consideration of this process is that, is the yoke of Christ following him and living the gospel really a lighter burden? That is the question that we'll probably all need to answer for ourselves at some point and is the question that was certainly being posed by my young student back in the day who loved to argue with me that the gospel and God's commandments were so restrictive and kept us really from being free. Let me tell you a little bit uh, about an experience that I had with this particular student. There was a point in time during the year where I noticed that she stopped coming to class for a, a longer stretch than maybe what she had normally done before. And it started to cause me a little bit of, of concern, and, and I was getting ready to, to call her mom at some point to just check on her and see how she was doing when I actually received a call from her mother. When I answered the phone, she introduced herself to me as my student's mother, and through tears told me a terrible thing that had happened to my student. She said that she had been out with some friends several nights before and that they had decided to do drugs together. 
and that her daughter that night had overdosed on drugs and was left by her friends literally in the gutter, afraid that they would get in trouble themselves. By the time the paramedics found her, she had slipped into a coma and was now in a hospital near the seminary in which I was teaching. She asked me if I wouldn't mind coming to the, the hospital and giving her young daughter a blessing, to which I told her, of course, I'd be happy to do that. And so after class that day, I went over to the hospital that was near where I was teaching and found the room in the ICU where my student was at. However, I was not prepared for what I would see when I walked into that room. When I pictured my student in a coma, I pictured her in a coma like you typically see on TV, where they're peacefully asleep and resting. But this was not, in, not the case. She was in what is referred to as a waking coma, where her brain is still very much active, but she is completely unaware of what she's doing. And so to help keep her from hurting herself, they had strapped her to the table by both her arms and her legs. And because her brain was still very much active, she was moaning and wailing uncontrollably. This was the scene that I walked into that I was not prepared to see. And I noticed riddle along her legs and her arms were scabs where she had picked at some of the potentially needle marks that, that she had used to inject herself with some of the drugs. And there sitting at the side of the bed, holding her hand with tears in her eyes, was her mother. I visited with her mother for a moment and told her how much that I loved her daughter and tried to give her as much comfort as I could. I then gave her a blessing and then proceeded to leave. Before I left, I looked back one more time to see the, the plight of this little student of mine, and I couldn't help but think back on all of the discussions that we had had about how restrictive the gospel was and how hard it was to keep all the commandments and how they kept us from being free. And I just couldn't help but think what my little student might think about all of those things now. And a particular verse of scripture came to mind as I looked upon that scene which was 2 Nephi 2.27, which reads, Wherefore, men are free according to the flesh, and all things are given them which are expedient unto man. And they are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil. For he seeketh that all might be miserable like unto himself. Now I'm happy to report that my student did eventually come out of that coma and recover to an extent. However, there had been severe brain damage done, which would really have an effect on her the rest of her life. As she came back to class, it was wonderful to see her there, but she also wasn't quite herself. And young people, one of the things I want you to understand is that all of us will yoke ourselves to things. We'll yoke ourselves to something. That's just what we do. Some, like my student, will choose to yoke themselves to some very harmful things like drinking and drugs. Others might choose to yoke themselves to immorality, while others may choose to become yoked to things like technology and video games or the need for attention or money. In fact, I think if we all take a deep, hard look at ourselves, we can identify that there are some things that we have chosen to become yoked to that are not good for us. C.S. Lewis tells a very interesting story about a man that enters heaven with a little red lizard on his shoulder. This little red lizard represents a part of him that wasn't good. And in order for him to stay in, in heaven and feel comfortable being in heaven, this lizard would have to go. And so the angel that was present in the story simply asks him a question, which is just this, may I kill it? The man gave all kinds of excuses as to why it wasn't the right time or the best thing to do or he could come back later. But yet the question continued to be asked, may I kill it? The angel pointed out that it could only be destroyed by his own free will and choice that it had to be something that he wanted and chose to be done. 
In other words, he had to submit himself of his own free will and choice for that part of him to be killed. That's how the natural man gets killed in each of us. We have to choose for it to happen and allow it for happen and to submit ourselves to Christ by yoking ourselves with him. I know many of you have seen the Harry Potter movies. If you remember the very last one, we, we kind of learned that there's been a part of Voldemort. There's a, a very a lot of similarities to the, the story that C.S. Lewis tells with what Harry Potter experienced because there was a part of Voldemort in him that he'd been carrying throughout the series. And in order for him to become who he was really meant to be, that part of him had to be killed. And the truth is, there's a part of Voldemort in all of us that must be killed. And sometimes that might hurt and it might seem very scary. But the choice is still up to each of us. God will not kill it for us. We have to, again, submit ourselves to him and allow for him to do it for us. The natural man is an enemy to God and will be forever and ever unless he yields himself to the enticing of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord and becometh as a child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child does submit to his father. That is what it means to be yoked to Christ. To end with today, Elder Worthland taught this truth about these verses. He said, Healing blessings come in many ways, each suited to our individual needs, as known to him who loves us best. Sometimes a healing cures our illness or lifts our burden. But sometimes we are healed by being given strength or understanding or patience to bear the burdens placed upon us. At times we may despair that our burdens are too great. When it seems that a tempest is raging in our lives, we may feel abandoned and cry out like the disciples in the storm, Master, carest thou not that we perish? At such times we should remember his reply, Why are ye so fearful? And how is it that ye have no faith? The healing power of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it removes our burdens or strengthens us to endure and live with them, like the Apostle Paul, it is available for every affliction and mortality. As he invites all of us to do, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now here's just a, a couple of key questions for you to consider, maybe spend some time journaling and discussing. The first one is, what does it mean to be yoked to Christ? And how do our covenants yoke us or bind us to Christ? That's a wonderful question to consider. Or what are some of the burdens that you're carrying right now? And how can binding yourself to Christ help you with some of your burdens? How has Christ given you rest from your burdens? How have you already experienced that in your life? In what ways might carrying Christ's burden be considered light and easy especially compared to some of the burdens of the world. And then a few applications that you might consider taking. One might be, what can you do to better choose carrying Christ's yoke as opposed to the burdens of the world? How can you be more vulnerable to God and to others and not hide what you've done or who you are? And as a part of that vulnerability, how can you be more accepting of yourself and more accepting of others? And right now, how is God asking you to be more submissive to him and to his will over your own. And what will you do today to submit yourself more to him? And finally, what is one thing that you will choose to do today to better live the purpose of religion, as we discussed earlier, and help those that are around you?
Remember, the greatest yardstick of success is to see how closely we can walk each moment in Christ's steps. That person is greatest and most blessed and joyful whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. This has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, or prestige. The only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness is how close a life can come to being like the Master, Jesus Christ, because He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life, as Ezra Taft Benson has said. And so, as always, let's take all that we learned this week and go follow Him better and become better in the process. And before we end this week, can I just ask two things of each of you? If you know of anyone that you feel could benefit from this podcast or that would be interested in it or that has teenagers that you think it might be helpful for, would you consider please sending them this podcast, sharing it with them so that they know that it's out there? And then second, if you hadn't had a chance to leave me a review, if you wouldn't mind doing that, again, that really goes a long ways in helping others to give a podcast such as this a chance. So thank you for considering doing that for me. I hope you know how much I love each and every one of you. May the Lord bless each and every one of you in your own effort and journey to come follow him. Until next week, everyone, I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens.